a lot of the manufacturing of filament was from weld rod. Okay. So, you know, it, the tolerances weren't really that high. They weren't really that great. And I'm certain there were probably some other companies emerging that were doing it, but at the time that wasn't that easy to find. Hello there, internet, and welcome to the 3D Print Authority podcast. This is a place where we come together to have a transparent and no BS conversation about the world of 3D printing and technology. My name is Adam Fosnott, I'm a mechanical engineer, and I have been fascinated by 3D printing for as long as I can remember. Let's get started. To, to kick things off, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and IC3D to the audience? Yeah, my name is Matt Organischak. I'm the COO of IC3D, so the Chief Operating Officer. Um, I handle most general uh, overall operations. Um, it, it varies from kind of sales work uh, down to working with customers for our printing service. Um, kind of just a lot of the high level new customers that come in, uh, anything that requires a decent amount of problem solving, uh, I am usually involved in some point with that. Um, IC3D has been around since 2012. We started like a lot of other companies um, at that time, building desktop printers. Uh, Michael's building desktop printers in his basement, um, you know, starting to sell them on eBay and uh, formed a company. Um, we moved into making filament in 2013, stopped selling printers around 14 or 15, um, did filament for a while, and then about 2016 started a printing service uh, and 2018 I think we built our first big printer um, we built two generations of machines in-house and then this year we're actually selling a printer this is our third gen machine be the first one for sale so that one's actually a finished product with everything that a printer would buy would actually have uh, some unlike some of our other machines we built were uh, get it done, make parts printers. So, gotcha. That's that's awesome. I'm so excited to dig into kind of each of those stages. Um, but before we do, I'd invite you to share something about yourself, kind of outside of 3D printing. Outside of 3D printing, um, I'm a pretty big mountain biker. Uh, I I loved mountain biking for years, but I've never really gotten to dive into it uh, as much as I wanted to. And so uh, as of January, I'm actually traveling with my wife, who's a travel nurse uh, in our in our van. Uh, I, I'm living with fr a friend right now, um, but the goal is to, to mountain bike for 180 days. So man, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is like, uh, you know, it'd be like a weekend weekend thing where I'd go out on weekends, right? Like everyone else, but this is like, riding a lot so, so you're gonna be uh, riding every day uh be probably half the days of the year okay know? gotcha and so, so you're driving in the van or are you also living in the van so living in the van sometimes um i don't think i'm at the point you know i maybe i was used to be at the point where i'd live in the van yeah uh, now <laughs> i like having a home base but you know we could spend up to four weeks in the van and it's not too big of a deal Gotcha. Man, that is so cool. That's going to be yeah. an, an awesome adventure. Yeah, it's, it's been good. One week, no big deal. I have enough water for a week. That's fine. After that, I have to find water. And that's a pain in the butt. Yeah, so. definitely. Um, I think that's kind of a cool um, side effect of, 
a much more remote work environment where you can like get things done and also travel and go mountain biking if you yeah. if you want to um have you been with ic3d since 2012 when they started so i met michael in 2014 and it was just kind of a let's you know let's do a little bit of stuff on the side and let's work on stuff because printing is a hobby and that's fun um and michael was working at honda and um i was i had a full-time job in ann arbor michigan okay we were in columbus ohio um, and I was, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Um, so I was working with Michael on the side a bit in 2014. 2015 was when I quit my job and I was the kind of the first paid guy to move back and, and work at IC3D. So gotcha. That's awesome. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to, to highlight you guys is because it's film it made in the United States, which can be hard to come by. Um, and also, I grew up in the Cleveland area. So oh, I, uh, I was born and raised in the, in the suburbs of Cleveland. Um, so Ohio has a, a special place in my heart, um, even though I, uh, I moved out a, a couple of years ago. Cleveland, um, very, very underrated. Very underrated. Yeah. I like Cleveland. <laughs> I've heard people say the same thing about Columbus, actually. Um, and my older brother lives in the, the Columbus area. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so... You two were living in different cities, different states. Um, how did you first get introduced to 3D printing? Was it through Mike or did you have something at work that you were using? No, I was uh, my last year in college. Um, I was just like, you know, 3D printers are getting kind of cheap. And, you know, I had maybe done a few prints in school, like with Stratasys machine or something. Okay. Um, you know, no big deal. Just a little bit of, wow, cool. 3D printing's a thing. That's neat. And then, um, you know, printers are getting cheaper. Um, and then I, I was doing a little bit of work on the side, um, helping a, a guy, uh, who builds rally cars in Dublin. Um, okay. So we built an all wheel drive Chevy Sonic rally car that raced in the X games and, uh, GRC and all that. And, um, I was like, you know, I, I have enough of a network to find people who need printing, why don't I buy a printer and maybe I can use it to make a little bit of money. Um, certainly wasn't the first and won't even be close to the last person to ever do that. Um, so I bought one, you know, it was a flash flash forge creator with the dual heads, like the knockoff of the wooden maker bot. Okay. The, the last wooden maker bot, the replicator. Yes. Um, and so that was a wooden machine. And I, I did. Okay. I paid, I mean, I paid off the machine paid, you know, back the machine or uh, made enough money, you know, and uh, I made probably like five times what I spent on the machine and all that, you know, and so it was pretty good. And so at that point I graduated and uh, was like, well, I, you know, I took all this time to get a degree and everything. And I guess I would go get a better, get a job, you know, and, and at least like a high, you know, I was an engineer uh, and it was like, I could get a pretty good paying job. So it's like, let's make a little bit of money for a minute. Um, even though I was, you know, uh, potentially able to start, you know, making 3D printing uh, my business, even though it would have been a stretch at the time with how much cash I was making, but had to make a lot more. So, gotcha. so I went and got a job and that lasted 10 months. So, <laughs> 10 months. <laughs> 10 months. <laughs> but still, um, I think there's a lot of value. Um, I ran a, a printing service in school um, out of my apartment uh, during my last year or two. So, I can relate yeah. to a lot of, uh, of what you're saying. But I think there's a lot of value in 
working for someone else and kind of learning about industry and how bigger companies work. So I think it's cool that you, you've got that experience. Um, so IC3D started selling printers. Um, were those just open source designs? Yeah, they were, I want to say Mendel Max designs. Um, Michael would probably tell me, I, I swear the Mendel Max is, he might tell me I'm wrong or something, but um, if you look around, you could, you could probably still find a few images of floating around. Um, I want to say they were like eight inches cubed or so in the build volume. Um, and so they were one of the open source designs with a little bit of tweaks, like everyone kind of made. Okay, cool. And then what kind of drove the decision to move from making printers to making filament, if you remember? So he started making filament before I was around. Um, and his main thing was at the time, 2013 or so, there wasn't really a reliable US made filament source. Um, even the overseas filament really wasn't that great. And I remember using it, you know, at, in 2013, 2014, thinking kind of the same thing. Um, a lot of the manufacturing of filament was from weld rod. Okay. So, you know, it, the tolerances weren't really that high. They were really that great. And I'm certain there were probably some other companies emerging that were doing it, but at the time it wasn't that easy to find. So he started making filament for that purpose. Um, and then the decision to stop making desktops was purely that at that time, there's a lot of competition and it was kind of like the hot thing to do was start a desktop Kickstarter. There's a lot of people doing it. Um, it's, it was like the amount of support you had to offer for a machine that was cheap over the lifetime of the machine. It was, it was kind of difficult without an enormous amount of scale to uh, make that sustainable. So it did, just didn't seem like something we wanted to continue with time um and even the machine we sell now is it is a lot more prosumed like way on the high on the industrial side so okay cool yeah when you the time period that you're rest, uh referencing kind of 2012 to 2016 that was what i think of as the the big 3d printing boom where to your point there were tons of kickstarters lots of low-cost machines that came out um and I think it's really cool that you guys kind of started in that era, but have matured and have multiple products and are, are still around uh, from that uh, kind of that origin story. Um, what material or what materials did you start making filament for at the very beginning? Uh, ABS was the first one. Um, that was just the material that Michael started printing. That was the material I started printing too. We were like, engineers and he came from the world where he was used to Stratasys machines, which were okay. the base materials, ABS. Um, and for me, I was like, oh, I'm an engineer. I got to use this engineering material, ABS. You know, I look, looking back on it, I'm not totally sure that was like the exactly, you know, needed to happen that way, but it did. And so he started making ABS and I started buying his ABS actually before we even knew each other. Um, and it was, you know, it was, oh, it was made in Ohio and it was local and price was good. So it, it made sense. Um, then he moved into PLA. And uh, at the time it was our, you know, we, we had, he had a line for ABS and a line for PLA. And so there'd be no cross-contamination between the two. Uh, so that was, that was a pretty big deal. Um, so those were just the two materials for quite a while. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, were these lines just in a garage? Did he have like a uh, a rented uh, warehouse somewhere to run these? How how big were they? Yeah, he was running. He was renting space um, just just outside of Columbus. Okay. In like a just a kind of a cheaper area, renting space, and then we had a guy down there that was running them. Uh, it was like a contract manufacturing shop. So the guy was the the people who ran the equipment were also employees shop of that building um they also assembled printers for him before we stopped making printers so that was that was kind of like a quick way to get up and running um instead of you know signing a lease on a big building and, and that sort of thing so we were able to store the equipment there and have those guys run it gotcha that's uh that's super cool i was imagining kind of like the the overhead cost of renting a space and how that would be be really challenging what about the the extruders themselves were they home-built units were they uh industrial level because i've seen some extrusion machines that are you know bigger than than trucks um so where where did those first machines come from yeah the first the first one is a little guy it was a refurbished u.s made unit okay um like an inch and a quarter screw um, and the, it's a, it's a, it's a full size extruder. Um, it's not very big. I mean, it might weigh, these guys might correct me if I'm wrong, 600, 700 pounds or so. Okay. I mean, it's not small, it's not home built. Um, it is an older, older thing. It is an older unit, but it works, it works fairly well for what we need to do. I mean, it, it, extruding filament is, uh, it's, it takes generally smaller extruders when you look at the scale of how big extruders come, they're generally on the small side. Our second one is a, is a more industrial one. It is also a uh, industrial extruder, uh, not a home built thing. Uh, and it is significantly larger. It's probably 1500 pounds or so. Um, okay. It's a 40, 40 millimeter screw. So it's, it's a little, I mean, as far as screw volume, it's a little bit bigger. It can push a lot more volume. Um, and it actually has a melt pump unit on the front, which is kind of a, odd thing for a lot of the filament guys making it um, so the melt pump unit adds a lot of consistency uh just requires a lot more cleaning when you switch materials and things like that okay and when you look at um the filament making process what are some of the the challenges and things you have to look out for while the machines are running Hey there, it's Adam. Could you do me a favor? If you are enjoying this podcast, could you rate it five stars wherever you happen to be listening? It's totally free of charge, and through the magic of internet algorithms, it will help more people hear the podcast. Thanks. Um, there's there's like a ton of small little nuances. Um, if you were to go and buy the most awesome extrusion system available in the market, it will cost way too much money to be profitable but it would be like completely automated and you know you might be able to shut the lights off and it will run and, and that sort of thing um you know it, it's all the way from the kind of the, the beginning of like how clean the material is like if if you get a tiny piece of wood that fell off of a pallet while it was shipping you know if that bag wasn't sealed when they shipped it to you or it gets dirty you're going to notice a bump or something come through the filament and when you cut the bump open there will be a little piece of something um you notice i've noticed with some materials we've gotten that i knew came from like bulk train car loads or something we'd notice a little bit more contamination than one that was packaged at 
at the plant and shipped to us in a in a bag in a on a Gaylord box with a bag in it. Um, we've got a recycled product that we get, and we've noticed a little bit more contamination, like from from that company, not necessarily because of the product, just like where it came from. Um, so so coming from starting there, going to your drying process, you know, the material's not dry enough. Um, maybe because your dryer is not functioning, your equipment's not running, um, or you know the material has balled up inside the dryer or you know i'm just throwing a couple of random examples but that material not being dry is, is really huge it'll cause us tons and tons of problems um but you know those are probably like a lot of the inputs that we notice cause tons of issues um, but there's a lot of issues kind of down the line um that i think you know in the beginning it seems like there's a there's a ton of problems that you need to solve and then kind of as we've kind of ticked, checked those boxes and knocked off, you know, issue after issue, uh, things have really come in. Um, but probably like like the material coming in is still like the biggest, like we kind of have to check it. We don't have as much control over it as we want. Everything else we kind of have control over um, except like a power outage. Okay. So, uh, we, we still aren't set up to, uh, on that, though, that equipment, it's not set up to, to handle power outages, but it just kind of depends on the day. It's, it's not too, too big of an issue, but you know, like we have huge water baths, they need to be at a certain temperature. Um, you know, we've got, we've built a lot of control to heat those up at three in the morning when the guys come in, you know, and make sure that baths aren't taking three or four hours of work time to heat up, you know, things like that. I would say the quality of the water, uh, you're heating that water, it's pulling a lot of minerals out of the water and depositing it places. So you gotta, you have to do a lot of treating up to that water to figure that out. I mean, that was a lot of work, you know, things, uh, it's, it's a lot of little things like that. Uh, it takes a lot of work, even once you buy that equipment, um, a lot of things that are out of your control are still being dealt with. So, yeah, those are all really cool examples that I wouldn't have thought of initially. Um, so when you get a, a batch of raw material, um, how do you detect if it's contaminated? And if it is, what do you what do you do with it? Do you just have to throw it out? I mean, there's just a basic visual like looking on the top. If, it, if it's contaminated, often on the top. If you run your hands through it or something like that, you can kind of see if there's anything that looks unusual. You won't be able to inspect the entire thing. Um, but just kind of as it's running, there are some stages when we're moving resin from area to area where it is visually, you're able to visually see it. Um, but generally, we are hope you're hopefully seeing something in the laser readout if okay. something is occurring. And then we have a hard go, no go gauge with a with a machine die that the plastic actually runs through when we go through respooling. So that's gotcha. kind of like our secondary gauge of checking if there's a problem. Um, now the machine does have a filter inside of it and called screen packs. They're metal filters. Uh, and there's all sorts of different meshes that you can buy and you kind of stack them uh, and put them inside the barrel. Um, and those generally catch a lot of contaminants. Um, if you know kind of what contaminants you're used to seeing, you can set the screen packs up to do it a certain way. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So, um, and so you, you started making filament, you had a couple different materials. When did printing services start to, to find their way into what you guys do? Yeah, I think it, it was just like the, the network that we had of customers 
we could tell there was a and like we could tell there was a need for printing service um, and you know for us trying to diversify a little bit as a small business as a small business you're always trying to kind of say grab onto anything you're you're good at and something that you can provide value at and so you know printing all the time as a you know as a secondary thing to making filament we're just printing and testing that filament and and so you you kind of just see it as a potential business opportunity oh we could we could print for the, this customer and that customer and that would really help us out uh and so you know, printing services is a difficult thing to run. I think um, not saying that anything is easier or harder. They all have their own challenges, um, but it, it takes it does take someone, a company who's selling a product and, and then adding a service, uh, which is a very different sort of thing. At the same time, it, it really diversified what we did. Um, and I think that you see a lot of companies who have uh, sell printers or make a product. And uh, you also notice somewhere on their website, they're saying, well, so print stuff for you. Um, and I don't necessarily know if anyone wants to do that as a business. They just want to sell their product. I think they're just kind of doing it out of desperation. Now I say desperation, I'm doing it <laughs> I need to make money um, because it's something they already know how to do and it's in demand. Um, it's a little bit different now. There's a lot of people doing FDM printing services there's a lot of FDM printers floating around. Um, so it, it has been, we move now more towards like uh, doing specific types of work. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, we don't take on certain jobs because it's, we're not profitable at it um, compared to a guy in his basement. Right. You're, you're reading my mind is kind of my where I want to go next with this is what mm -hmm. types of customers do you typically serve with your printing services? Yeah, we, we're serving, we serve a lot of bigger industrial customers or like their tier ones or their tier twos, like their suppliers. Uh, so we have a few OEM customers in some instances, it doesn't make sense. Um, like we don't deal too much with, with OEM automotive OEMs. Those guys have a lot of their own printing capability now, but their suppliers may not. So it's, we do it like a lot with those companies. Um, we have we have some niche services, like we have six machines that are very large, um, four of them, four foot by four foot by three and a half in build volume. So it's not common to see an OEM or a uh, supplier that has that many machines that big. And so we can do a high higher volume of big things. Um, you know, like so take into account like a, a prototype for a bicycle frame. Um, there might be a seven different sizes of a bicycle frame and bicycle frame might take five or six days to print. So, uh, you know, if you've got a big printer and you're a bicycle OEM, you might, might take you six weeks to print all those frames, you know, uh, and that's not fast enough. So uh, that's, that's the kind of markets that we often do really well at. Um, and at this point we have so much experience with the, the large format printing um, that, uh, you know, I, I'll say like, I think just cause you have a large format printer doesn't mean that you can accomplish the job. <laughs> so we have, we now have kind of that, we have that knowledge as well as the, the large printing capability. Um, you know, I, I think that's a, kind of a, leads me into a kind of another thing we do is that we don't really have an auto quoter that just spits out a number. Um, we deal with a lot of customers who don't really know what they want already. 
Okay. So these big customers are saying, you know, I'm, I'm thinking we just got to find a different way to do this thing. Like, what do you think? Do you, think, you know, do you, does 3D printing solve that? They usually are just like, they don't know much about printing and they're just saying, does 3D printing solve that problem? And sometimes it doesn't and uh, it doesn't make sense to pursue it. And sometimes uh, it, it does and, and we can figure it out. Um, you find a lot of people who know what they want already. Um, and, and they can be good customers depending on what we do, but, um, those people might already go to like a, a company order or they might already have their own printer. So, okay. Um, the, the build volume that you described is definitely uncommon. Usually printers are printing in inches, not in, in feet. Um, do you find that people are coming to you for, just really big prototype parts or are there applications outside of prototyping that you see coming up a lot? It is often prototyping, um, which is, which is not anyone in the, in the 3D printing world at this point is kind of getting tired to think of doing prototyping. We're all like, come on, let's do the production stuff. I want to hit go over and over and over again. Um, it is often prototyping, but I'll say we, we find applications where there are jigs and fixtures that are still built with a production, a, like a semi-production process only because that's the only way they know how. So people might still have a large um, shell of a piece that was vacuum formed and they want, you know, 30, 40 parts made. It's still annoying to go to the vacuum former and get a tool made and the vacuum formers and be like, you only want 30, 40 parts, that's annoying. But the parts just so happen to be 40 inches long and you know i don't know 40 40 inch by 40 inch rectangle or something like that and then we find that we're we can be pretty competitive uh pricing wise doing that you know it, it really helps us out especially at that size that's a lot of plastic so then we get to benefit from uh having the plastic you know the, the filament manufacturing in-house but that becomes a, a pretty big deal at that point definitely. definitely um and when you talk about shipping parts that are that big those are pretty heavy and I'm imagining that the, the shipping costs would become a, a factor in some way. Um, yeah. Do you mostly have customers in the United States? Do you do business internationally? How does that work? A, a tiny bit internationally. It's mostly domestic. Okay. Um, shipping parts that big would all be done on pallets. So, I mean, I've got examples where we have parts that stack on each other. We've, we've, we've shipped pallets of parts. 3D printed parts, you know, filling a, a 42 by 42 inch pallet stacked five feet tall. Um, okay. And that's pretty fun. Gotcha. That's awesome. Um, you'll definitely have to share some pictures with me of that later because yeah. that sounds yeah. super cool. This, this whole conversation actually requires pictures. Like I'm like, <laughs> I can't show you stuff because I don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the funny part about podcasts and publishing on YouTube and other platforms is sometimes visuals get lost, but it'll be all right. Um, when you're doing services, are you typically doing ABS, PETG, or do you have uh, kind of a lot of demand for a variety of materials? Um, you know, the ABS, ABS and PETG definitely takes the bulk of it. And it's interesting because those materials are so similar, but they usually uh, are kind of selected somewhat based on geometry. Uh, we have a lot of support material. We notice we do really well removing ABS supports. Um, we don't have, uh, we're, our, our new machine is the first like truly reliable dual head machine. So this will be the first time we'll be starting to use support material or breakaway material all the time. 
But up until then, we had, we have like 30 S6s and they're still all single head machines. So we do a lot of selection material based on support sometimes. Um, but we, we've, been, we've been seeing a lot more demand for TPU, doing a lot more TPU. Um, we do that fairly well, I think. Um, that's just an experience, uh, experience and a little bit of design for the machine. Um, we don't see a lot of the high temp stuff, the all temps and the peaks and the pecs. It's, it seems to be a little uncommon for our customers. Um, a little bit of ASA, ASA is starting to make its way in, so we're doing more and more ASA. And then we have a UV PETG product that actually isn't released yet that we've been selling a little bit for ASA here and there. So, Okay, awesome. And do you make all of those different materials in-house? How many are you making in-house today? Um, today, that is a good question because we actually have, we have a decent amount of materials we've made for the printing service and they're slated to be released, but they haven't been released yet for one reason or another. Um, but it'd be ABS, PLA, PTG, we have a UV PTG, we have a recycled PTG, um, we have an ASA. Let's see, we've got two TPUs coming out. One's a 70D, one's a 98A. Um, and we're working on a few more. So right now, extruded in-house, I want to say there's a little over eight. I'm sure there's a few that we're missing. Um, but if you'll check our website, we don't have a lot of those released that... Uh, on the 18th, we are releasing the recycled PTG. That one has been too long. We've waited to do that. Uh, we've been using it for like nine months already in-house. So we use a considerable amount of it actually. Gotcha, okay. Let's dive into that a little bit more uh, since, you, since you brought it up. Um, why recycled PETG versus other materials? Um, and where do you find recycled PETG? Do you have a question about 3D printing? If so, I would love to answer it. Feel free to leave any questions in the comments down below or go to 3dprintauthority.com slash forms to submit your question. Thanks. Or, yeah, that's... or find PETG to recycle into filament. Yeah. yeah, No, there's so there's a decent amount to say about this, so I'll try to make it uh, uh, concise. Um, but it, you know, it starts out with it starts out with kind of an interest in what you see in the market and you're saying, huh, it's interesting. It's recycled PTG. You know, that would give us all warm, fuzzy feelings so that we weren't, you know, um, using a ton of plastic. Um, and then you find out where the sources for recycled PTG come from. Um, and there's a couple different sources. Um, we use specifically post-industrial recycled material. Uh, so this is a lot of wide spec material that uh, is not, it's wide spec material that's really not making spec for the some of the virgin PTGs and other grades. Uh, so that material is basically trash. Um, and so that material ends up going to be used in just really weird applications. The, the weirder one that I heard was cornhole bags. Okay. Um, so it's, it's just kind of trash material. Um, and so that material, uh, instead of going to the landfill, was something that we we can purchase uh, at a pretty low cost. It's actually really cheap, um, and that's one of the things I'm most excited about because it's it's hard to have a U.S. made filament product that is on that like really cheap end. So that's one thing I'm shooting for. The next place that you can get it from is Regrind, which is uh, we've made parts or we've made filament and we chop it up. So. Uh, that would be that would be one 
another way. And that, that would just typically called regrind. Um, so in our case, we're actually, we just got a grinder. It's a really big grinder. It's large enough to put bike frames in. I know we talked, I talked oh, about bike frames. Awesome. There's a reason why it's the largest enough to put bike frames in. She can throw whole bike frames in it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, and so uh, that material is going to go back into our recycled PETG product. So the makeup of that product uh, right now is completely post-industrial waste that we purchase. Um, there is, we are going to be toying around. Do we do, uh, do we start adding in ground regrind from our virgin PTG, which is the product that everyone really likes the most. Do we start putting regrind in from that into our recycled material? Um, we're definitely going to have regrind from post-industrial into that material. And, and I don't feel like we'll, we'll see too big of an issue. Um, but it's definitely something that because we're able to start recycling some of that material, and it used to be in the 3D printing world, everything had to be virgin because it was we're looking for highest quality material. Now we're saying we have this product that specifically has regrind and recycled content in it, and people want that, so it's good. Um, so that means we can start recycling, like um, in this case, I have to buy black dye, we have to buy black dye and dye the material black. If I already have black regrind, I don't have to do that anymore. Uh, and so there's there's definitely cost benefits to doing it. I mean, there's time, there's effort, there's keeping the material clean. We talked about contaminants is issue too. Um, but so you know the I guess you know going back to the original question, um, you know you got warm fuzzy feelings from recycledness. You've got cost is a big benefit. Uh, and then the third one, uh, you actually have uh, flow. This material actually flows really well. So when we do the big big prints. We usually have like a big nozzle, like a two millimeter nozzle or one millimeter layer height, something like that. Uh, and it actually flows really well. I think really because it's, it's temperature um, isn't as, uh, it doesn't have as high of a temperature resistance as normal PETG. So, okay. you know, it's a little bit degraded, right? It's not as good, but for whatever reason, it gives us this flow. And when you build parts uh, really thick and heavy, like you're gonna build furniture chairs or something, doesn't really seem to matter that amount of mass you know strength wise and heat resistant wise it, it's fine as opposed to a thin flimsy piece you leave in a hot, hot car on a summer day or something it's a different story so gotcha no that's that's really cool i think that um if you think about recycled filaments the my knee-jerk reaction is to think of taking 3d prints and turning it into filament um, but it's really cool how there's these various sources that, uh, that you can pull from. And um, I think flow characteristics of a filament are often overlooked, at least for me, when I, when I think about a filament, I'm usually thinking strength and heat resistance. Um, but flow is really important to the actual printing process and the speed and uh, layer adhesion, all those, all those things. Um, what about the UV stable PTG? That's not something I've heard about from anyone else. Yeah, this this is an interesting one. And, um, you know, I'm kicking myself a little bit because we've been a little slow to release this one. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's our normal PTG that everyone likes with a five-year UV stabilizer added to it. Uh, so it's not... Um, you know, it's it's a... This is a difficult thing when we talk about UV stabilizer because there's no... Uh, environment, the all, all environments are, are kind of different. 
Um, so it's just kind of an estimate. It's like an average UV, you know, uh, exposure, this would probably be fine for like five years. Uh, and then there's two different types of UV that you talk about. You talk about the resin and it degrading, and then you also talk about color. And in this case, we're talking mostly about degradation of the resin, not the color. So the color may change, uh, but the, the resin turns super brittle and fall apart. As I'm sure a lot of people have seen like that white ABS sits in the sun and it turns kind of yellows out and it kind of becomes brittle. Um, so for most applications, that's, that's pretty good. Um, some people don't want to print with ASA. It is a little bit more difficult. It's kind of like printing with ABS in some cases. Uh, so the UV PET G is, is pretty cool. Uh, so that's something that we've been using for quite a while and you should see that coming soon. The, the recycled PET G will be first. Uh, the UV PET G will follow shortly after. Okay, awesome. And I'm, I'm keeping uh, an eye on the clock. I don't want to uh, wrap up before talking about your guys's machines. So you said you have a machine available now. And it's a third generation machine. So you've been working on it for a while. Yeah. So I mean, you know, first machine we built was like three foot, three and a half feet cube build volume. Uh, and then the next one we built, it was, you know, you learn from some of your mistakes, you build a little bit better. Those machines had uh, aluminum frames that were bolted together. Um, they had big, thick aluminum beds that didn't move. Uh, so everything moved around them. Um, and they were all lead screw driven. So we had no belts. The machines were pretty big. Um, but what we learned was that the machines were actually pretty flimsy. Um, they were light, uh, which isn't really great for what you're trying to do. Um, when you really try to push them fast, they kind of moved a little bit more than we wanted them to. They weren't as rigid. It really comes out in, in the part quality. And at that size, it's harder to make a rigid printer. Um, so we did a few major changes, but you know, I say third generation, it's the third iteration of stuff that we've built and we've learned from. Um, so this machine, if you get on our website, it's called the Virago 700. Uh, it's a medium sized machine, meaning uh, 600 millimeter by 700 by 785. Uh, and it's 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 easier to learn printing a large format when it's more of that medium format um going big the bigger you go the bigger the problems are so we thought medium would be a good place to start uh the frame is all welded steel so there's a big steel weldment uh quarter wall two inch steel uh beams on the sides we've got like a half inch steel plate on the top and quarter inch steel plate on the bottom. And then the top is just milled and all the important components sit right on that milled surface. Um, so it's it's a pretty serious operation to build that frame and it's pretty awesome. And the motion system is all uh, THK, uh, carriage rail, linear rails, uh, along with ball screws. So we've got Z, we've got lead screws in the Z, ball screws in the X and the Y, and the machine does have IDEX. So it has two separate heads uh, on the X axis. Um, and it moves very quickly. Um, we, we're uh, going to be putting closed loop. We have closed loop motors on them, but we don't have the closed loop system 100% sorted out. So the, the current machine is going to go for sale with the closed loop motors on, but not operating. And we'll be upgrading those later. Uh, but when we were testing the closed loop system, uh, we were seeing, I want to say like 700, 800 millimeters a second. And we were able to read that from the encoder. So we were getting real feedback and it was fast, um, but that wasn't, we were doing it. We didn't have all of the components on the machine at the time. So uh, we'll have to see what happens like with the added weight 
but we're testing it with travels around 400, 500 millimeter second. So gotcha. that's not that crazy for travel speed, obviously printing speed is slower. So. Yeah, that's, that all sounds really cool. Um, a lot of times uh, we don't see a lot of ball screws in 3D mm -hmm. printing, um, but what you're describing with the, the welded steel frame alone it's again very uncommon in in 3d printing um so i'm i'm really excited by the the sound of that um 600 millimeters might be medium for you but for myself and a lot of other people that's a big machine yeah yeah it's definitely it's definitely big i get it uh everything's relative i guess <laughs> <laughs> um as far as hot end extruder uh, material capabilities. What does that look like? Do you want to be a guest on this podcast? If so, go to 3dprintauthority.com slash forms to apply. Thanks. Yeah. So, uh, we've, we've been testing a few heads. Uh, I think kind of the nice thing about this system is I think we're not really stuck with a specific head design. Um, if we, you know, decide we want to make changes or add something new. It's something that we can just kind of build ahead and ship to a customer and it can be basically bolted on and plugged in. Um, so we're not, we're, we haven't hundred percent settled. Um, the current system that we're using right now is we have the slice Magnum and we're using the dies, uh, one of the dies extruders. I think the, the, the pro version of their extruder, um, which is, they're very similar to each other. Uh, and that combination has been really, really nice for now. We, we've been really enjoying that. Um, we have tested the E3D Hemera previously, and we'll be we'll be testing the Bontec LGX whenever we can get our hands on one. Um, we're not we're not in a rush because we have so we we're we're constantly still working on this demo, the the first demo machine, and we'll have the next two machines coming online here in the next few weeks. And we're just really trying to get time on the machine, so. I'm trying not to, we're trying not to change out too many variables, knowing that the head is something that is pretty flexible. If we want to make a design with different components and change those out, we can. So. Yeah, that, uh, that sounds really cool. Um, I think it's awesome how you guys are taking, uh, kind of pulling from the ecosystem of 3d printing components that are readily available and turning those and putting those on. Uh, a really solid platform from what from what you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really exciting. I'm excited to see where where the project goes from here. Um, I want to uh, ask one more question, but before we get there, uh, I'd invite you to uh, tell people where they can find you, where they can learn more about IC3D, and if there's any special calls to action you'd like the audience to take, uh, now's your time. So find us on uh, www.ic3dprinters.com. Um, we're most active on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So definitely check us out there. All the things I talked about are up except for some of those new materials. So keep an eye posted for those new materials. Gotcha. Awesome. Um, and then the last question I have for you before we, we wrap up is what is one thing outside of your products and what you're doing at IC3D um, that you're really excited about, whether it's a, a trend or a technology or something that you want to see more of in 3D printing? I want to see more uh, concrete printing. I want to see more of that. I think that's going to be something that's going to sneak up on all of us. 
Um, and uh, because I, I definitely know it's, it's a lot of things are hyped, like really hyped in 3D printing. And, um, you know, that seemed like something that was like really hyped. And then I swear, I just saw something where you could, you know, they were actually selling a couple of 3D printed houses. And I was kind of like, oh my gosh, is this, is this actually happening? Not that I don't think it could. It's just like, usually that's not something you think would sneak up on you. Like, I think like 3D printed uh, dental work just kind of out of nowhere. It was just there and they just did it. And I was like, oh, wow. I thought this would have had to go through more trials or something, you know? So that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. That's a, that's a really cool answer. Um, yeah. I've seen so many articles recently about actual homes being for sale in the United States that were 3d printed. Um, and I had the same reaction. It was really unexpected um, from what I've seen so far. Um, so likewise, I'm uh I'm really interested to see where kind of that segment of 3D printing goes over time. Yeah, I want to I want to build a 3D printing house. I mean, <laughs> that sounds great, right? Well, I have to think about it a little bit more before I just jump in and say it sounds great. But it yeah, seems <laughs> <laughs> someday, someday it'll happen. Um, thank you so much again for uh, for joining me, and uh, until next time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my chat with Matt from IC3D. After we got off the call, him and the team got back to me with a special offer just for people watching or listening to the podcast. If you go to IC3DPrinters.com and enter promo code 3DPrintAuthority15 when you check out, you will get 15% off your order. If you aren't subscribed to 3D Print Authority, now is the time to do just that before you get on with the rest of your day to make sure you don't miss any future episodes that we publish. Until next time, happy printing.